And when Jesus entered the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came up to him as he was teaching and said, by what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? Jesus answered them, I also will ask you one question. And if you tell me the answer, then I will also ask, uh, tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John, from where did it come? From heaven or from man? And they discussed it among themselves saying, if we say from heaven, he will say to us, why then did you not believe him? But if we say from man, we are afraid of the crowd, for they all hold that John was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we do not know. And he said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. What do you think? A man had two sons. And he went to the first and said, son, go and work in the vineyard today. And he answered, I will not. But afterwards, he changed his mind and went. And he went to the other son and said the same. And he answered, I go, sir, but did not go. Which of the two did the will of his father? They said, the first. Jesus said to them, truly, I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. And even when you saw it, you did not afterwards change your minds and believe him. Here another parable. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence round it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit and the tenants took his servants and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. And he sent other servants more than at first, and they did the same to them. Finally, he sent his son to them, saying, they will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. When therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? They said to him, he will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their seasons. Jesus said to them, have you never read in the scriptures the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he was speaking about them. And although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds because they held him to be a prophet. This is God's word. Would you join me now in prayer? Father, a moment ago we read about the gate, the gate of your kingdom that the righteous enter in. Our mind's eye goes to that gate, to the Garden of Eden guarded by the cherubim, brandishing flaming swords, saying, you cannot come in here. 
you are not righteous. You are sinful. You are unclean. You are unworthy. And so, Father, it's our joy to be able to rest in the reality that this is all our righteousness, nothing but the blood of Jesus. Thank you for Christ. Thank you for what we celebrate this week and every week, that Christ has been crucified and risen from the dead. Thank you for his shed blood. God, this morning as we open up your word, I pray that you would, uh, that you would ignite life in each one of our hearts and that we would not be merely religious talkers, but those who believe in you. And I pray that you would open up to each person within the sound of my voice the gate to the kingdom of heaven so that each one of us might know for sure that we are forgiven and that we are welcome in your family, not because of our own righteousness, but because of the righteousness of Jesus Christ. So, Father, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the most overrated stages of life has got to be the high school years. I remember thinking as a youngster of 12 or 13 years old, I just cannot wait until I get into high school. I, I mean, life will be much, much better when I become a high schooler. And of course, if you're a seventh grade boy, some of you in here perhaps are in that stage of life, maybe high school is better than that. If you're in high school right now, no offense. It's not that I don't like you. I'm, I'm just glad I'm not in your stage of life. You've probably had somebody tell you, as many people told me when I was in high school, enjoy these years. They don't last. And I remember thinking, I'm glad. <laughs> if you enjoy high school, uh, wonderful. That's great. I, I just think that for many people, high school is a prelude to something better. And for me, that was certainly the case. Because in high school, you have to navigate situations that no one else faces. For example, consider the phenomenon that we might call the new kid. You know what I'm talking about. It's the middle of August. You show up for the first day of practice. You're feeling kind of sad that summer vacation is coming to a close, but you're also excited to see your buddies. And you walk onto the field and into the lo or, or into the locker room, and, and there he is, the new kid. Hey, what's your name? Chad. And by the way, if your name's Chad, no offense. Chad's probably scared to death. He's a new kid. He's in a new school. But to you, he looks kind of smug, you know. Who is this guy? Hey, what position are you trying out for? Safety. Wait a second. I don't think so. That's my position. And because Chad's new, the coach is going easy on him and giving him a chance, and he's chewing you out because you've been here for a long time, and you ought to know better, and you, you ought to be uh, on, on top of things, and it's throwing you way off. And then it's the first week of school, and you sit down at lunch, and there across the table from you sits Chad, and he strikes up a conversation. Hey, what do you think about Ellen? And you immediately begin to feel the heat rising and the veins in your neck popping out. No, don't go there, not Ellen. What do you mean, what about Ellen? Well, you know, I was thinking about asking her out. 
And uh, you can kind of feel the, the anger coming on because you've always thought that, uh, you know, you and Ellen have this sort of on-again, off-again thing, and maybe you guys are going to date in the future, and yet uh, you find that not only does Chad get a date with Ellen, but all the other eligible females are interested in him, too, because they've had to look at your ugly mug since kindergarten. <laughs> and you're ashamed to admit it because he's done absolutely nothing wrong, but the truth is that you're just not a fan of the new kid. And maybe you get over it, but then again, maybe the next time you're playing Ultimate Frisbee in gym class, you not so accidentally throw the Frisbee into the back of his head. You know, high school was hard for a lot of us. It does get better, in my opinion, thankfully. You say, Jake, why in the world are you talking about this? Because, here's the reason why. Because apparently we don't grow out of this sort of thing, do we? Take, for example, the chief priests and the elders of the people here in our passage that we just read about. They've been the teachers of the law. They've been the big men on campus, the example everyone looked up to, but then in walks someone new, and boy, is he new. Just the day before, Jesus of Nazareth, a carpenter, not a scribe, a Nazarene, not a resident of Jerusalem, a peasant, had entered into the city of Jerusalem riding on a donkey, not a horse, Nevertheless, had entered with cheers of the crowds of people. The children had sung songs of praise to him and waved the branches of palm trees. For him, no one got that kind of treatment. Even the most prestigious teachers weren't treated this way in the city of Jerusalem. And so why is the new guy getting this kind of treatment? To make matters worse, Jesus, that very day, had left this makeshift coronation ceremony and made a beeline for the temple where he then proceeded to drive away the cattle and overturn the tables of the money changers. It was like he was a king whose throne room was in the holy of holies itself, a king clearing away the riffraff from his royal abode. In other words, the first Palm Sunday, you know, today is Palm Sunday. The first Palm Sunday wasn't like today. It wasn't a peaceful celebration like I hope today is for us. It was more like a riot. And the leaders of Israel have had enough of this new guy. They were jealous of him. They envied his popularity. They feared what might happen if he were allowed to keep teaching day after day what he was teaching. And so the next day, Monday, when Jesus once again returns to the temple precincts, these elders are right there to trip him up because they're dead set on killing the one who had exposed their empty leadership and threatened to take away their power. See, what's remarkable about this passage, what we must remember when we come to a passage like this one, is that the righteous, perfectly holy son of God was not killed by the most spectacular sinners. He was not killed by the weasels who collected taxes or the women who plied their trade in back alleys and brothels. We need to let this truth sink in. It was not the publicans or the prostitutes who murdered the son of God. It was the pastor's. The men tasked with shepherding God's people, the spiritual ones, the priests, the ones who knew the word of God frontward and backward. And if that is true in the first century, then how can we have hope today? And today we're going to see there's plenty of hope to go around, but it all hinges on one person, a person many of us, many of you, perhaps even today, are too proud, too conceited to surrender to. Our passage has three movements, each of which carry life-giving lessons that will warn the high-minded but warm the hearts of the humble. And I'll just go ahead and give you those three movements right now at the beginning, and then we'll move through them one by one. 
Uh, first of all, in verses 23 through 27, we see the response of the Savior. And then in 28 through 32, the repentance of the sinner. And then finally in 33 through 46, the rejection of the stubborn. So consider with me in the first place the response of the Savior. The response of the Savior. If you're in high school and you're jealous of the new kid, you're going to try to outdo him in the weight room or maybe spread a nasty rumor. But if you're a chief priest or an elder of the people and you're jealous of the new guy, you ask him questions in order to trip him up. And that's what these guys are doing in verse 23. The leaders are right there when Jesus arrives at the temple and they call him out on the carpet. Hey, Jesus, by what authority are you doing these things? Like, who do you think you are? Uh, Okay, who do you think you are? Uh, questioning the son of God, the one who created the worlds and commands the armies of heaven. Like you really want to question Jesus like this? Have you ever tried to question uh, your parents, for example? Like not ask them a question, but question them. How does that go? Here's asking a question. Dad, can I use the car on Friday night? Here's questioning your parents. Dad, why didn't you save up enough money so that I could have my own car when I turned 16? You don't do that. Don't question them. Like, by the way, most of you know that doesn't stop after you graduate from high school and move out of the house. If you're smart, you learn not to question your parents. Even if you need to confront them about something, like, you better tread carefully. Because even though they're wrong, you've got to remember who you're dealing with. And yet, how often do we question Jesus? I remember several years ago talking with a leader of one of the local cults in our town that we had been living in, a man who... They come to my house to dispute with me about whether or not Jesus is the Son of God. And we talked for about an hour, and it became clear to me that I was talking to one of those people who patiently waits for you to finish talking so that he can say what he wanted to say, and he doesn't listen to anything that you're saying at all. And he had all these questions, but I realized that he really wasn't looking for an answer. So finally, I said, listen, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Do you believe this or not? Conversation was over at that point. You might be thinking, of course, I'm not like that. But friends, there are all kinds of reasons that we We go from asking a question of Jesus to actually questioning Jesus. Maybe you've been through a circumstance that's hurtful or you've dealt with a relationship that's been hurtful and you're angry about it and you're thinking, that wasn't right. I I didn't deserve that. My kid didn't deserve that. And, And Jesus, you want me to believe that you're in control of everything that happens? If that's true, then what in the world? Like, why was I born with this learning disability? Why is my wife sick? Why me? And the pain and the hurt scabs over and it turns into a hardness of heart and we begin to question Jesus like Jesus by what authority did you allow these things to happen in my life maybe for you it's a an intellectual objection you're thinking wait a second I I read an article in National Geographic that says that homo sapiens migrated from uh the northern parts of Africa into Europe and they mingle with the Neanderthal population and yet when I open up this book, it tells me that there's one guy that was formed from the dust of the ground and then God made a wife for him out of his rib. Like, I don't know if I can accept that and if I can't accept that, then I'm not gonna accept anything that I find in this book. Like, Jesus, by what authority do you do these things? And we begin to question Jesus. And listen, make no mistake, it's good to have questions. It is fine to bring them to Jesus. Who else are you going to bring those questions to? But there's a difference between 
coming to God as if he were an academic subject versus an actual person, a person who has absolute authority over you. God resists the proud. And any approach to God that places me above him, that makes me the judge and God the defendant, it's coming from a prideful point of view. It's not going to go well. In the case of the chief priests and the elders of the people, they question Jesus. It's not so much a painful circumstance. It's not so much an intellectual objection that prompts their interrogation. It's fairly transparent that they have an ulterior motive. Like these are men who have power. These are men who have influence. These are men who have position. They're wealthy. They occupy the space between the people of Israel and the mighty Roman Empire. So they want to maintain the status quo. And they have one thing on their mind. They want to get rid of the man who almost caused a riot the day before. And they're going to just, they're going to talk to him as long as it takes for them to find out, trap him in his words so that they can arrest him and kill him. That's what they're after. And so Jesus wisely turns the tables on them in verse 24. He says, how, how about I ask you a question? And then I'll answer your words. So he asks them about John the Baptist. I say, who's that? Well, John the Baptist, he's a guy who was born into the same privilege and power that these chief priests and elders of the people were born into. But instead of going their route, he actually abandoned that privilege and he laid aside the garments of the priesthood for leather uh, camel hair <laughs> garments. And he moved out into the desert and he became a, a mighty preacher who baptized people in the Jordan River and actually introduced Jesus' own ministry. John's preaching was so effective that he got himself killed, and after he, became, after he was killed, he became almost a folk hero for the people. He's legendary, and so Jesus asked this question about John in the presence of the people, and the chief priests and the elders are stuck. So they can't answer accurately because they're not believers. They don't believe that John actually preached a, a divine message. They can't answer honestly either because if they do that, they're going to be mobbed by the crowd. So they don't answer. They say, we don't know. Well, folks, here's the point. People have been doubting Jesus ever since the beginning. They've been questioning Jesus from the moment they heard his name. Jesus can withstand the scrutiny. But here's the question. Can you withstand the scrutiny? The chief priests and the elders of, people, uh, of the people, they couldn't, they, they couldn't withstand the same scrutiny that they wanted to give to Jesus. You see, I need uh, evidence in order to believe that Jesus is the son of God. Uh, but I just want to ask you a question. What evidence do you have that your beliefs are valid? What evidence do you have that your priorities are legitimate? You say, well, how can a, a good God let bad things happen? Good question. Lots of people are exploring that question. It's a very important question. But let me ask you this. Are you prepared to face the alternative? Do you have a, a rational alternative? Like that God doesn't exist? Does that even make sense? Where did all this stuff come from if God doesn't exist? Where, where did you come from if God doesn't exist? Did aliens put, put us here? And if aliens put us here, where did the aliens come from? Do you see what I'm saying? It's completely irrational and, 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 and frankly silly to believe that God doesn't exist. Or friends, is it, is it more that you have an ulterior motive that you don't want to believe that God exists? What I'm saying is, if you have questions to bring to Jesus, bring them, but bring them humbly. Be willing to question Jesus' opponents just as thoroughly. Be willing to question yourself. 
Jesus can withstand the scrutiny. How about you? We, we, we don't want to end up like the chief priests and the elders of the people. They've been outmatched, and now they're going to have to go to school. And that leads us to our second movement in verses 28 through 32, the repentance of the sinner. The repentance of the sinner. In these verses, Jesus invites the chief priests and the elders of the people to imagine a vineyard owned by a father of two boys. I'm sure that that was easy enough for them to picture in their mind's eye. Some of these guys probably owned their own vineyard, and a lot of them probably had sons, more than one son too, and maybe if you have more than one son, you can relate as well. Like you know exactly which one of your sons would be the one to say no, and then turn around and do what you asked, and which one would say, yes, I'll go do it, and then turn around and disobey. So he asked these men to kind of put themselves in the place of the father. Which young man did what his father asked? You judge for yourselves. And the answer is very clear. The one who said no, but then turned around and obeyed. He didn't start out so well, but at least he did what was told. The other one held a lot of promise, but all it ended up being was empty talk. Amazing how simple and straightforward to discern the will of God here. You don't need a PhD in comparative religions to understand this stuff. Like we'll all, we all understand it intuitively. Religious talk, followed by blatant disobedience, is still blatant disobedience. I mean, it's simple. On the other hand, God is patient and kind towards us. He's not willing that any should perish. So here's this other son who starts out in rebellion, but we're told he changes his mind. Now, that's a word. That's a very important word in the New Testament. It's a word that is often translated regret or repent. The connotation is sorrow, remorse, and in this case, it's followed by a change in direction or behavior. So here's the son who lashes out at his own father, and yet later he comes to himself, and he feels sorrow, and he feels remorse, and then he changes his mind and goes and does what his father had asked. And the lesson's clear for the chief priests and the elders. You guys think you're so much better than everybody else because of the way that you talk With your long speeches and your lengthy prayers, your flowery words, your debates and your disputations about the law and the will of God. But when the time comes for you to actually exercise faith, when God sends a prophet like John the Baptist or even his own son, Jesus, and gives you the message and shows you that the very fulfillment of everything that you've been talking about is here in front of you, then at that moment you reject it. May it never be that our relationship with God is all talk. Talk is important to a point. But when our words are betrayed by the way we live, then our words don't actually mean anything. I mean, what does it matter if I say, sure, I'll go to the vineyard, but then I don't go? It's actually better if I wouldn't have said anything at all. But following Christ isn't about mere talk if your heart isn't in it. Uh, When I was in college, I worked in retail sales. I sold jewelry, not very good at that, but I, that's what I did. And you learn a little bit about human nature when you're in a job like that. Guy comes in, this happened often. Guy comes in, he's looking for an engagement ring. You show him a few diamond rings and uh, he starts to kind of go back to the one that he likes and he stares at it and he starts to ask these questions that signal like he's really interested and he, he might be someone who's gonna actually buy this ring. Like, whoa, yes, this is a big sale. And so he's like asking about financing and, and, and whether or not we have gift wrap. And I'm thinking, yes. And then he says something no salesman wants to hear. Hey, can you set that aside for me? I don't get paid until Friday. 
and he promises and he swears up and down that he's going to be back on Friday evening and then he walks away and you set it aside and you know he's never going to come back in the store. It's just the way it always happens. Why? Because talk is cheap. It's just talk. Some of you are here today and you feel pretty good. You enjoyed the music. You enjoyed the nice weather as you were driving in. It feels good to get a little bit dressed up. You hear the preaching, you're invited to respond, and you're going to say to yourself, you know, I want to change. I want to be different. I want to do what's right. I want to start living a different way. But then you drive back home, and life goes on, and by about Monday afternoon, you've completely forgotten all the commitments you made. You see, talk is, is cheap. Following Christ, it's not about saying things. It's, it's about really believing. And the chief priests and the elders of the people, they just talked about God all the time. They probably had a huge part of the Bible memorized, but they didn't believe any of it. But then look at these tax collectors and the prostitutes. They start out stealing from people and selling their bodies. But then one day they hear a man named John, John the Baptist, and he's preaching, repent because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And they think, that's for me. That message is for me. I need to change. I need to change my mind. I need to stop following my evil ways and finally believe in Jesus, this guy that he's talking about. And they do that and they're changed and they live a life of faith from that point forward. And so friends, here's what I want to do. This morning, I want to invite you to change your mind to change, to repent, to stop thinking of Jesus as an historical figure of interest, to stop thinking of Jesus as an inspiring and quotable teacher, to stop thinking of Jesus as part of your family's culture and start thinking of him as your Lord and your Savior. To stop just talking as though you're a follower of Christ and to actually do it, to actually commit yourself to him. I want to invite you to stop thinking that you are too far gone, that you've asked for forgiveness too many times, that your sin and your guilt are too ugly and too much for Jesus. You're talking about a God who would rather hang out with a repentant tax collector than the most important religious figures of the day. I mean, do you know anybody like that? You're not like that. I'm not like that. I mean, imagine the most important person you know a CEO or the the owner of your company or a senator or your favorite musician, somebody that's really important to you, and they invite you to dinner. And as you park your car and you get out and you walk toward the restaurant, that, that girl that bullied you in junior high meets you in the parking lot and she says, hey, can we grab coffee because my life's been changed and I want to talk to you about it. I mean, what would you do? Oh, sure. Let me just interrupt my appointment with this really important person and and come spend time with you. No, you wouldn't. You would say, I've got an appointment right now. I I don't have time for you. I'm busy. But Jesus doesn't have anything to gain from the chief priests and the elders. He didn't come to get. He came to give. And so he eagerly welcomes the sinner who repents. But he's not quite done offering a word of of rebuke and warning to the men who had challenged him at the beginning of the passage. And so before he finishes, he leaves them with one last parable. So notice with me in the third place, not only the response of the Savior and the repentance of the sinner, but thirdly, the rejection of the stubborn. The rejection of the stubborn. You know, most of us, when we're in a conversation and things are starting to get tense. 
and tempers are beginning to rise and, and uh, it's getting very emotional, we immediately have this instinct that we want to diffuse the situation. We want everybody to calm down. We don't like that. It's socially awkward and uncomfortable. But look at what Jesus does. He does the exact opposite here. And I'm not saying you have to do this every time, but Jesus ratchets this way up. He, he like throws a nuclear warhead into this conversation. Once again, he invites the chief priests and the elders to imagine a vineyard. And these guys knew their Bibles, uh, probably better than most of us. And so when Jesus says, there was a master of a house who planted a vineyard, immediately their minds are thinking about Isaiah chapter 5. Isaiah chapter 5, the prophet tells about a vineyard, and it's clear in Isaiah chapter 5 that the vineyard is actually Israel herself. And Isaiah, the prophet, he talks about how God, the, the master of this vineyard, he plants the vineyard, he walls it in, he takes care of the soil, he clears away all the rocks and all the things that don't need to be in there, and then when the, the time comes for the harvest, the grapes are not good grapes, they're sour grapes. The juice from the grapes is, is not pleasant, it's, it's worthless. And these chief priests and the elders, they knew about that story, and Jesus, what he does is he takes that very word picture, that biblical parable, and he kind of makes a, a little tweak that really drives it home for the chief priests and the elders. In this case, when Jesus tells that the issue isn't Israel in general, it's Israel's leaders who are the problem. It's these tenants. Uh, the master of the vineyard entrusts, entrusts it to these men, but when, when the time comes for him to come back and, and, and collect the rent, they kill and beat the, the servants who are come to collect the rent. And, and finally, when he sends his son, his very own son, instead of getting their act together, they kill the son too. And Jesus finishes his story and, and he invites the chief priests and the elders to pass judgment on the tenants. Like he asks them, what do you think about this story? What do you think the master of the vineyard is going to do to these tenants who won't pay him the rent? And in answering, they condemn themselves. They're the wicked tenants. Their forefathers rejected the message of the prophets and killed them in the shadow of the temple itself. And now standing before them is not a prophet, but the son of the vineyard's master himself. And they're plotting to kill him too. So these men, these chief priests, these Pharisees, they're like the builders. The builders who walk right past that cornerstone, that, that, that one stone that should be the most important in the building. They walk right past it. They reject it. They're in charge of this great project called the people of God. But even though they're supposed to know how to build, they reject the cornerstone of the building itself. The very people who should have recognized Jesus as the son of God before anyone else are about to be the ones who plot his demise. Can you imagine being a priest like this? I mean, think about what this entails. You're born into a special family. You can trace your lineage all the way back, many generations. You're wealthy, you're powerful. You have privilege, you have the respect of your countrymen just by virtue of your family heritage. As a young boy, you learn to, uh, you, you work hard to learn the scriptures. You participate daily in the rites and rituals of temple life. You're, you're, you have this discipline in your personal life. Your calendar is filled with religious activities, and yet, after a lifetime of religious devotion to an ancient religion, you end up committing the greatest sin of all time, the murder of the Son of God. 
And all your prayers and all your sacrifices are polluted by the reality that the one person you should have been worshiping is the person you hated more than all the rest. See, it wasn't the publicans or the prostitutes, but the pastors who murdered the Son of God. It was the righteous. It was the pious. It was the disciplined. It was the men that everybody else looked up to. Say those hypocrites. And sure, it's easy from our perspective to see these guys as the villains that they are. But there's a lesson here for all of us. Here's the lesson. No amount of devotion, no amount of commitment, no amount of religious activity, no amount of righteous living, however you define it, is a replacement for how you respond to Jesus Christ. It all boils down to that. See, I've, I've tried, I have always tried to be a kind person. And that's great. That's wonderful. But what's your response to Jesus? See, I've worked hard every day of my life. I don't know anybody anything. In fact, if I see somebody in a bind, I reach out to them. I help them. That's great. But, but what's your response to Jesus? See, I keep my commitments. I pay the price. My parents didn't treat me right when, when I was growing up, but I still take care of them today. My spouse is really unkind. She's, she's like as mean as a hornet, but I haven't divorced her. I've never left. I never even cheated on her. That's good, truly. What is your response to Jesus? You say, man, you are being really petty. Like, I think God cares a little bit more about how I live than the specifics of my theological beliefs. I mean, that's just extraneous to what, the way that I live every single day. But that's the whole problem. This is exactly what the chief priests are doing. They come to Jesus with this cynical assumption that who Jesus is doesn't matter at all. He's just in the way. All that mattered to them was getting him out of the way and maintaining the status quo, and it was actually their righteousness. It was actually their religious status. It was actually their standing among the people that became the obstacle to a true relationship with the God of Israel. Do you see what happened here? Paul the Apostle, uh, who became a Christian years later, he used to hang out with these guys. And he tells the Philippian church in Philippians chapter three, this was his mentality. He had it all. He was a student of the scriptures. He spoke Hebrew. He was born into a well-liked uh, Jewish family. Uh, he, he knew his lineage. He was a guy who checked all the boxes. And you know what he says about all those different things? Those things that were points in the pro column? He said, listen, all those things, they were, they were loss to me. They were rubbish. Like I was trying to get to God and all those things I thought were positive were like a bag of trash on my shoulders. In other words, Paul came to a place where he had to realize that the very things he thought were points in his favor were actually what was keeping him from a relationship with God. So what I'm saying, friends, is that your reputation for hard work, your kindness, your servant's spirit, your faithfulness to your spouse, as wonderful th as those things are, listen, this is serious. They may actually be the very thing that is keeping you out of the kingdom. This is why the tax collectors and the prostitutes were coming to Jesus much more easily. They were broken. They realized their hands were empty. They had nothing 
They needed someone to rescue them from themselves because they understood, I am dead meat unless God forgives me. What all of us need to take away from a passage like this is that there is no, listen, there's no good reason why we need to respond to Jesus the way the chief priests and the elders respond. We don't have to go that way. He tells them exactly what they're doing. They still go and do it anyway. But it doesn't have to be that way for you or me this morning. And this is so important. Jesus literally tells them the kingdom, the good life, the eternal life, the, the only thing that matters is going to be taken from you and given to somebody else, someone who doesn't deserve it any more than you do. And the question this morning, the question of your life is, is there any way that I can be sure that I don't end up like these guys? Is there any way that I can know that I am going to have the kingdom? Like, especially since you're telling me that these are the pastors of the day, the super spiritual ones. How do I avoid going down the path that they're going? It's actually very simple. How can I know that I have what these tax collectors and prostitutes know that they have? How can I know that I have Jesus? It's simple. You don't have to become a tax collector. You don't have to go the way uh, do this, the, the specific things that these people are doing. What you have to do is you have to recognize that the same impulses, the same desires, driving the great sinners of any age flow through my veins as well. Like, I am no different from these guys. I am like, I may not have collected taxes and tried to skim off the top and steal from people. I may not have abused a child. I may not be a corrupt politician or a bully, but... I've sinned against a holy God. And all those evils that I see out there in the world, I see them coursing through my veins. I'm that sinner. I'm that needy. I'm that in need of a savior. I hear the message of repentance. I hear the message of turn back from sin and believe in Christ alone. And I think that's for me. So folks, listen, here, this is what it all comes down to. It's not that we all need to feel bad and, and feel like we're just worthless and we're just like the chief priests and if these important people are so bad, then how much worse am I? No. God, listen, here's the message. God made you. God made you for a reason. And because God made you, you are eternally valuable to him. Like he wants you to glorify him. He made you so that he could share himself with you. And the truth of the matter is that you don't do, you don't do what he's asked you to do. You, you rebel. You, all of us do. And it's not because it's too difficult to understand. It's not because of the environment that I live in. It's not because I've been educated wrongly. No, that's not it. It's because who I am, the real me, has been twisted. And I can't fix it. I can't undo it. I can't correct it. I can't go back and change it. I myself have become offensive to the justice and the holiness of God. But friends, the good news is that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, Jesus Christ. Jesus came and he obeyed where we disobeyed. Jesus took the punishment that we deserve. He died the death that we were supposed to die. He took the curse that we earned. And the very thing that these chief priests and the elders were guilty of is the thing that purchases our freedom from judgment. It was when they nailed him to the cross that he bought us from slavery. 
And then he rose again. And that's our hope, folks. That means that all those who are united to him, all those who say, I'm a sinner, I need to be forgiven. I can't get to the kingdom on my own. I need Jesus to give it to me. All those people, that's their future. Just like Christ was raised, so will we be raised again. Today, are you forgiven? Are you forgiven or are you a good person? You know, it was the good people who killed Jesus. I don't want to be that kind of good person, do you? Much better to be counted with the sinners and forgiven by the blood of Christ. Today, don't leave without bringing yourself to God. In fact, let's sing this together. Nothing but the blood. What can wash away my sins? And kids, I want you to do this with me. This is what we do on Wednesday night. We remind ourselves that there's nothing but the blood. So kids, you guys help me lead it. Ready? What can wash away my sin? Nothing, nothing, nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing, nothing, nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh, precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. No other fount I know. Nothing, nothing, nothing but the blood of Jesus. I hope you believe that today. Would you bow with me now in prayer? Father, thank you for this truth that it's not the righteous but sinners you call to repentance. It's not the healthy but the sick that you come to heal. Lord, we're like those tax collectors and and prostitutes. We're like those people who uh, recognize that their sin separates them from you. We don't want to be the good person who thinks he doesn't need Jesus. We do need you, Father. We need your son. We need his blood. And it's only by his blood that we can stand before you. Father, we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.